1: If you know someone with Parkinson's or you know nothing about Parkinson's, you will want to read Brian's story. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader? Audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's Foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. It's time. With the start of the 2021-22 NBA season less than 24 hours away, and how nice is it to be able to say that, it's time to give you my preseason picks as far as who will be facing off in the finals next June. Now, it's considered bad form to be anything other than declarative and emphatic when making some sort of sports pronouncement. At least, that's the general belief when you're having a debate or disagreement on radio or TV, because it's, let's face it, it's performative as well as informative. And I believe the rules are different, especially for a one-person podcast. I certainly want to make you enjoy listening or make it enjoyable listening to this podcast and hope that you find it entertaining, but I don't think I have to be a carnival barker to make that happen. All that is a run-up to saying that this year's championship race appears to be as fraught with unknowns as I can remember. And that's because there are teams that have the earmarks of title contenders, but have serious health and or chemistry issues to answer. For example, if I knew Kawhi Leonard was going to be back in February or even March, I would count the Clippers as a for sure title contender. But since I don't know that, I'm going to leave them out of this particular conversation. If I knew not only when Klay Thompson will be back, but who he will be when he returns, along with who and what James Wiseman will be when he's healthy, I might consider the Warriors for the conversation. But I can't, so I won't. Likewise, the Atlanta Hawks intrigue me. What I don't know is if they have enough defenders to make up for the fact that Trey Young is a major liability at that end of the floor. Which might not matter all that much during the regular season, but in the pursuit of a championship, it's an Achilles heel. The Warriors got around it with Steph Curry because one, Steph is not beastly by any measure, but he's still bigger and stronger than Trey. And two, he was surrounded by outstanding defenders in the Warriors championship years. This is what, and bothers is probably too strong of a word. So let's go with, this is what puzzles me about the Brooklyn Nets and the Los Angeles Lakers being favored so strongly by oddsmakers and media members alike because those teams have as many questions to answer as any team in the running maybe more so is Kyrie Irving going to miss the season is LaMarcus Aldridge going to contribute anything the Lakers meanwhile could be the final exam for a chemistry AP class How are Frank Vogel and Carmelo Anthony going to get along? What about Russell Westbrook and Frank? Can Anthony Davis stay healthy? Is the Russell Westbrook pushing all of Anthony Davis's buttons going to work? Can LeBron and Russell share the ball? How much will they miss losing their three best perimeter defenders, Alex Caruso, Dennis Schroeder, and Contavious Caldwell-Pope? Can Dwight Howard give them what he gave them two years ago? How are Malik Monk and Kendrick Nunn going to fit in. I'm okay with the Nets and Lakers being favored, even though I don't favor them. But heavy favorites? To me, it just speaks to this dumbed-down fantasy basketball perspective on what makes for winning basketball and championship teams. If you play fantasy hoops, how many Bucks players would be drafted in the first five rounds other than Giannis? What about the Toronto Raptors? Or the Cleveland Cavaliers the year they came back from 3-1 against the Warriors? What about the 2020 bubble Lakers? Depending on the size of your league, I would imagine no more than two players from any one of those teams would be drafted in the first five rounds. I might be wrong about that, but it feels about right to me if you had, say, seven or eight teams in your league. And all those teams that I mentioned, those teams won four of the last six championships. My point being, this idea that big threes or fours or fives are the surefire formula for winning a title has been proven wrong over and over and over again. Yes, Steph, KD, Dre, and Clay won two titles. But did the Raptors have a big three? We know the 2020 Lakers didn't because even their fans gave up trying to insert Kyle Kuzma into that slot. And don't try to tell me the Bucks, after the fact, have a big three. Nobody was talking that way about them until they won a title. What all those teams had was a core that fit well together. Their best players complemented each other. There was a division of labor. Someone was the obvious go-to scorer. Another was the lockdown defender. Ideally, the best player had the Michael Jordan-esque quality of being both. I have spent a decent amount of podcast space already discussing the Nets and Lakers flaws, so I'm not going to go back over that ground. Other than all that I said, consider that and weigh that against what I have given you as the definition for teams that win championships. I understand why they're favorites. I pointed out their flaws more as a response to them being such heavy favorites, not that I don't think it's possible that they can get there. I recognize that both are not only loaded with talent, but are led by superstar players who already have championship rings. Knowing the formula to getting there is a very valuable piece to the equation. They've both also drawn a lot of offseason attention with the Acquisition of high-profile names. You could make the argument that they've gotten better. The Nets added former all-star Paul Millsap and San Antonio super-sub Patty Mills, and LaMarcus Aldridge has returned after retiring because of heart issues that apparently have been resolved. The Lakers traded for Russell Westbrook, brought back Dwight, and signed Carmelo Anthony. Add to that the consensus that Injury played a huge role in both the Nets and Lakers falling short last season. That's all well and good. But I'm looking at two teams, my two teams, who have far fewer questions when it comes to health, far more carryover of continuity from last season, and arguably just as much firepower. Two teams who didn't fall short last year, who actually exceeded expectations. Who also have superstar players, and coaching staffs, and GMs, who now know the formula to reaching the finals. Who have also made off-season moves that have drawn far less attention, but bolstered what was good enough to get them there a year ago. So yes, right now, if I'm picking two teams to meet next June in the finals, it's the Milwaukee Bucks and the Phoenix Suns. I know. It's not as sexy as picking fresh faces and rosters loaded with All-Stars. But let's be clear. When we talk about those teams, we're not talking about current All-Star talent. The attraction of the Nets and Lakers is not who a good number of their players are now, but who they were in the past. Their expected success is built on those players recapturing what they once were. The Bucks and Suns, conversely, need their current players to build on what they proved to be just last season. And they are all at an age where that seems a very reasonable expectation.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: Let's start with the Suns, since they are projected as the least likely to get back to the finals, at least judging by the odds makers. The Nets are a plus 250 to win the 2022 title, with the Lakers right behind them at plus 375. The Suns are way down in fifth at plus 1,500. And for those who don't bet, it means you win $250 if you bet 100 on the Nets, and they win it all. And you get $1,500 betting 100 bucks on the Suns if they win it. Now, did I like the Suns' chances a year ago? No, I did not. Neither did Vegas, especially in the preseason. They were a plus 4,000 in training camp. The Bucks, for what it's worth, were less favored going into the playoffs than they were at the start of the season, dropping from a plus 550 to plus 700, presumably because they were going to have to get through the nets to get there. My point being, the odds can be swayed by how much is being bet on particular teams as much as how good they are. Teams like the Nets and Lakers, coming from two huge markets, are understandably going to have a lot of people betting on them. So as a result, the odds and the money return on those is going to go down. Odds makers getting heavy betting on particular teams, they want to hedge, hedge their bet, if you will. Look, I wouldn't have bet on the Suns either last year. I wasn't convinced they could get past the Lakers in the first round despite having the Western Conference's second best record. One big reason for that the matchup between Anthony Davis and Deandre Ayton. I said it at the time. AD had previously dominated Ayton in their matchups. It was part of it was he was motivated from what I was told that he was being that Ayton was being labeled the next great big man as if AD had been forgotten. Another was LeBron James versus Jay Crowder. It was just a year earlier in the bubble we had seen that Crowder was no LeBron stopper. So, why do I expect those matchups to be different now? And when it comes to LeBron and Crowder, I'm not sure that I do. LeBron didn't victimize him the way he did when Jay was with the Heat, but I attribute that to the fact that Jay had more talent around him in Phoenix last year and LeBron had less by the end of the series. But Ayton versus AD is a different story. The news that AD is going to play more center might scare some teams, but it certainly won't the Suns. Because DeAndre Ayton is a different Ayton than the one whose biggest claim to fame prior to last season was being the number 1 pick in the Luka Doncic Trey Young draft class or being suspended for 25 games for testing positive for a banned substance at the start of his sophomore year. Sophomore year in the NBA that is. He changed all that last season. If not during the 72 regular games, regular season games, then certainly with his part in getting the Suns to the finals why his postseason performance is being completely ignored going into this season is a mystery to me. Is there some belief out there that it was a fluke? He was matched up with AD and then league MVP Nikola Jokic in the first two rounds and was more than up for the challenge despite this being his first taste of postseason action. For those who have forgotten, Aiton was the most consistent, effective two-way center in the playoffs last year. And he demonstrated that against AD before AD was injured. It seems the world needs reminding exactly how their Game 1 matchup went. AD had 13 points on 16 shots and 7 rebounds for a plus-minus of minus 18. Ayton, meanwhile, had made... 10 of 11 shots for 21 points to go with 16 boards for a plus-minus of plus 16. AD was better in games 2 and 3, scoring 34 points in each, but that was also on the strength of 30 free throws. And I don't want to dismiss the value of free throws. It's just that they were such an outlier for the way AD plays and, quite honestly, for the way the Suns play. They're usually pretty good about not sending guys to the line. When the Suns or any team keeps AD off the line, his scoring numbers are not nearly the same, and he seems to decide on a nightly basis whether he's going to be aggressive enough to draw fouls. Aiton, meanwhile, was effective game after game, both on the boards and in scoring efficiency. The man shot 80 percent for the series, to AD's 40 percent. Aiton is. 23 years old, which means he is on the cusp of entering his prime. While the son's reluctance to give him what he wants at the negotiating table on an extension is both curious and a little troubling, I see it as providing only more motivation to prove that last season was no fluke. And, unlike Davis, I have no concerns about his health. The man played 69 of 72 regular season games. He averaged 36 minutes a game in the postseason, clearing 12 boards and contributing 16 points while shooting 65% overall. That's a higher percentage than he shot in the regular season, which speaks volumes. Playing against the best competition, he managed to be more efficient. The Suns, overall, lost none of the pieces that were instrumental in them getting to the finals. Young pieces that will assuredly benefit from the experience of getting there. Young pieces that assuredly have their best days in front of them. Mikel Bridges, Cam Johnson, Cameron Payne, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton. Offensively, there's no reason they can't be as good or better than a year ago when they had the fourth most efficient scoring team in the league. Defense is where they needed to improve. And they did so with two key additions. Alfred Payton as a backup point guard and JaVal McGee as a backup rim protector. Now, Knicks fans mocked Payton for his limited offensive production and dismissed him after Tom Thibodeau dropped him from the playoff rotation. And I understand why Tibbs did it. Playing against the Hawks, he needed playmaking and offense. That's not what Alfred offers and that's not what the Suns need. They need someone who can spearhead their defense when they have a lead, and Chris Paul needs a blow. Cameron Payne is great coming off the bench when you need scoring, playmaking, that kind of dynamic element. Monty Williams had no one to fill that role a year ago. Now he does. It's the same with rim protection. Frank Kaminsky and Dario Saric were options a year ago when Ayton wasn't on the floor. Sarich is out for the year with a torn ACL and his physicality will be missed, but he had four blocked shots in 50 appearances. McGee swatted 54 shot attempts in his 46 appearances split between the Cavs and Nuggets. The Bucks won a championship with essentially a seven-man rotation. Bobby Portis and Pat Connaughton coming off the bench. The additions of George Hill, Rodney Hood, and Grayson Allen received little fanfare this summer, certainly not in comparison to the Nets adding Millsap and Mills and getting LaMarcus back. But all three should provide upgrades where Milwaukee needs it most, which is to a defense that was ninth in efficiency. Dante DiVincenzo missed all but the beginning of the Miami series, also should be back at some point. P.J. Tucker, who is now in Miami, had his moments. But by the finals, the Bucs were a better team with Portis getting P.J.'s minutes. It's why I don't project Tucker's absence as a significant loss. Portis was ready to force him to the bench anyway, which is why I believe Tucker is now with the Heat. The Nets added more of what they already had, which is shooting and scoring. But how is their defense going to improve? Neither Millsap nor Aldridge is capable of defending Giannis, especially now that he has accepted his greatest impact is when he's playing below the free-throw line. The turning point for Team USA, meanwhile, against Australia last summer in Tokyo was when Drew Holiday decided to utilize his 2-inch and 25-pound advantage over Mills and big-boyed his way to the basket. I could easily see the Bucks and Nets meeting in the Eastern Conference Finals. And if they do, I would say, as of right now, the Bucs are infinitely better equipped for that matchup than they were a year ago. I know, if fully healthy, so will the Nets. That's why it should make for an interesting conference finals. It's also why I expect that, depending on the seeding, that that's where we should see them meet. Look, we have... A long way to go between now and June, obviously. A lot can happen, obviously. But if I have to pick favorites, I'm going with the two teams that grew from being the last two teams standing last year and who didn't suffer any major departures and have players who, Chris Paul excluded, are in, on an upward trajectory in their careers. I'm going Bucks, Suns. Those are my picks for now. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, i got a couple other options for this next podcast going into the season. And because I know we're going to go heavy with games this week, I may go to, I had a conversation about the NBA lane and the seventh anniversary commercial. I have a lot of insight into how that was built and who was in it and who wasn't and how they tried to accommodate all that and how they're going to continue to try to accommodate it. Look, I found it entertaining. I liked it and I was curious. And so I did a little bit of a, a subruder thing on on that whatever Two minute uh, clip that that is and i'm thinking that in the next podcast i'll bring all that i learned from the people who put it together unless something else major comes up so in the meantime as always thanks for listening